We're going to do what we do each Sunday now, come to a passage in God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it, starting into our new Advent series today. So if you have a Bible with you, Bible app, whatever it is, if you could look to Luke chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, and when you found that, if you are able, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. When I finished, I'll say this is God's word, and I'd love you to respond by saying thanks be to God. Luke writes this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the regions of Iturea and Trachonitis, Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the roots of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, uh, and they said, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. And the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. And John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, would you open our hearts and minds right now to your word, what you want to speak to us, what you want to accomplish in our hearts and minds and lives. We believe that your word does accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. And whatever that purpose is in each one of us today, I ask it would be accomplished by your Spirit's power working in and through us. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, I know that I have introed at least one Christmas message this way in the past, but the fact remains, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pot. I'll, I'll tell you why. Because Santa Claus is coming to town. 
He sees you. He sees you. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake, and he knows if you've been bad or good. So be good, for goodness sake. Which remains, in, in my view, one of the strangest, most threatening-sounding Christmas carols ever. Um, like, of all, like, that I've ever heard in my life. I mean, which, I don't know, maybe was the intent. Maybe that's exactly what uh, the writers were going for when they wrote that. You get the sense that whoever wrote the lyrics to this carol included at least uh, a group of parents on the edge, just, just done with their kids' behavior and wanted to put the fear of Christmas into them. You know, that they were just like, hey, you, you, you know Santa sees all of what's going on right now, don't you? He sees. He sees all this defiant behavior, and if he came tonight, what do you suppose he'd leave under the tree for you? Yeah. So, so if I were you, I'd, I'd do everything I could to turn this around over the next few months, or you're going to have nobody but yourself to blame come Christmas morning. I, th- I think that's the vibe that they were going for with this, this carol. And, and I, I bring it up as we begin this Advent teaching series this morning, entitled Prepare Him Room, because the whole point of this series is about how we prepare our hearts and lives for Jesus. In the same way that expectant parents prepare their homes and their lives in order to welcome a new family member. Um, with new parents, they make those preparations based on who they know a child to be, like what needs are associated with that child's coming. And, and when you transfer that idea to the coming of Jesus' birth, whose birth we celebrate every Christmas, what we're going to spend the next five lo- weeks looking at is who Jesus came to be and what it looks like to prepare room or, or continue to pre- prepare room in our hearts for him. But that's actually the challenge when it comes to this picture of Jesus as a refiner that we are looking at from our passage today, because with all the other pictures of who Jesus came to be that we're going to be looking at through this series, they're, they're all relatively easy to absorb, to, to take on for the most part, relatively speaking. I mean, looking at Jesus coming to bring joy, Jesus coming as our Savior, as our humble King, relatively speaking, quite easy to accept. But when you listen to the way John the Baptist describes Jesus coming, Um, as this one greater than him who baptizes with fire, um, axes at the roots of trees, a winnowing fork in his hand. I mean, he sounds about as exciting and, and like beautiful to welcome as Santa Claus does in that threatening Christmas carol. Um, It doesn't sound like something we'd want to prepare room for at all. And sure, yeah, in verse 18, Luke uh, describes uh, Jesus' This presentation of him is good news. He says, John, continue to present this good news. But I mean, I don't know about you. I read that. I'm like, hmm, doesn't sound very good, actually. <laughs> Sounds kind of terrifying. Um, and, and certainly not something, that it's, it's a part of who Jesus came to be that we probably just want to leave off and try to prepare any room for. But on the far outside chance that maybe Luke is right, maybe uh, uh, there is something truly good and desirable about Jesus coming as a refiner. I want to just look at our passage today in two simple ways. I want to talk about the presumption of refinement and the purpose of refinement. The presumption and the purpose of refinement, just those two things. So if you've closed your Bible, Bible app, whatever it is, would you open them again with me? Follow along as we look through this together. We're going to kick off this Advent series today looking at who Jesus came to be and what it looks like for all of us to prepare room in our hearts for him this Christmas. Okay, so let's look first of all at the presumption of refinement. 
presumption of refinement. And maybe you'd hear the order of these points and you'd ask, maybe we shouldn't begin with the purpose of refinement first before talking about any presumptions or preconceptions we might have about it. Because, you know, isn't that usually how the order works? And in most cases, I'd agree with you. I'd say, yes, that's right, except that when it comes to the subject of refinement, Jesus bringing refinement, the presumption most people have is that they don't need it or want it before even pausing to consider uh, what its purpose might be for their lives. They kind of just already presume that they don't need it. So that's why I chose to begin looking at the presumptions around refinement first. Because I think when you come to realize that you need something, you find it much easier, more likely, and motivated to want to discover what it is. And to begin with, where I'm getting this language of refinement from in particular is both from the ministry of Jesus that John the Baptist is describing for us in our passage here, but also specifically from a prophecy about Jesus coming, uh, given in connection with John the Baptist that we read about in Malachi chapter 3. There, Malachi brings this prophecy, and he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's talking about John the Baptist. And the Lord who you seek, and this is now referring to Jesus, the Lord who you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings of righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years. So John the Baptist's whole ministry, as you see both in Malachi 3, as well as the prophecy from Isaiah 40, that, that all four gospel writers include talking about John the Baptist, that's in verses 4 to 6 of our passage, it's all about preparing the way for Jesus' coming. That's John's job. In fact, when I first got the idea of this Advent series about preparing room for Jesus, I thought, how can I actually leave John the Baptist out? I mean, that's literally his whole ministry is about preparing the way for Jesus' coming. But as you also see, one of the clearly stated purposes of Jesus' coming is refinement, is, is purification of his people. But it's in John's warning in verses 7 through 9 where you clearly see the presumption about the refinement that Jesus came to bring that I'm talking about here. So look with me there. John says this. These people are coming out to be baptized by him, and he says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of trees, but every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, in Matthew's account of this same story, it's the religious rulers who come out to be baptized in particular that John says this to. Here in Luke, John says that he's calling everyone, these brood of vipers. But whoever John is referring to specifically, the presumption of refinement he's pointing out, as we see in the second half of verse 8, is the presumption that because, he, he says, your presumption is because you're a Jew, because you are part of the covenant people of Israel itself, that's what secures your right relationship with God. And so if you are already in right relationship, then you wouldn't need either my baptism of repentance or the refinement of the one who I'm coming to prepare the way for. 
which is something about the baptism of John that we often don't hear about. But the reality is, is that John baptizing Jewish people out in the Jordan was actually a hugely scandalous thing. Because traditionally and historically speaking, Jews were not baptized. Uh, yes, there was all kinds of ceremonial washings and things that they were part of, but none of them underwent this process of like a full immersion baptism. They didn't do it. Baptism was for Gentiles. When Gentiles converted to Judaism, they underwent baptism. And it was a way of kind of saying, I'm committing my whole self to this new thing. So as you can hopefully see more clearly now, John is, is warning all these crowds coming out to be baptized, don't rely on your heritage as the covenant people of God, that it somehow excuses you from this need of this baptism of repentance, or especially of the refining work of Jesus in order to be right relationship with God. Don't presume that, that this baptism is something for sinful Gentiles, but not for people like you. So hugely scandalous thing. And the point I want you to see here is that the reason John is speaking this way to the people is because they're coming out to be baptized, and he knows that so many of them are operating with this working assumption. The presumption that their heritage is something that makes them right with God. So they're coming out, yeah, and maybe they're going through the motions. They're kind of part of this exciting movement. They're hearing all these exciting like things that sound like a movement is going on. So they're coming out, and they're going through the motions, but not out of a sense that they truly need this baptism of repentance, or the refining work of the one that John is preparing the way for. He's warning them against this presumption. And yeah, sure, when you apply this same concept to our lives today, I don't know a lot of Jewish people um, who, who would say, hey, I'm relying on the fact that I'm part of the covenant people of, of Israel historically, so that means I'm in a right relationship with God. I don't, I don't I don't know a lot of people who are saying that to me ever, but what I hear people all the time saying in all, ki all kinds of other things that they feel exempt them from the need for the refining work of Jesus. I hear that all the time. Uh, people say things like, oh, listen, you know what? I, I've been grow I grew up in church, going to church all my life. Um, even now, I go to church all the time. I give to charity. Uh, you'll hear people say things like, uh, you know what? I know I'm not perfect. I'm a relatively good person, though. I try to do good things for others. Basically, what, what, what most people are saying, spiritually speaking, is I'm, I'm doing good, thanks. Doing pretty good. Don't really need any of this refining. I mean, I, I could show you some people who probably do need that refining, but mostly I'm good. Thanks very much. And yet here's where you see the disconnect really strongly. You ask that same person how they're doing emotionally, how they're doing physically. Almost everyone will acknowledge their need for refinement, repair, or reformation of some kind. Everyone's going to say that. I mean, we're all experiencing that collectively right now, kind of coming out of a global pandemic. You know, it's, it's what some people have described as the great unwell, where, where, where nobody's okay, even if we're trying to pretend like we are. But you know what? Even, even before the pandemic, even like outside of that, most people would have acknowledged even before that, that they have a need of some kind for personal refinement. You know, I'm doing a lot of self-work, trying to understand myself better. I'm trying to lose that 20 pounds, find my abs again, whatever it is. Everyone has is, is got some idea of refinement that they need in those other areas. But when you begin with the presumption that spiritually speaking, you're mostly good, you set yourself up then to miss out on the refining work of Jesus that he came to bring and, and potentially to miss out on a reconciled relationship with God through faith in Jesus at all. 
if you're deciding that I'm mostly good, I don't need his refining work in my life. That's why John the Baptist, that's what John the Baptist was warning these crowds about, the presumption that they were fine without the refining work of Jesus. And it's really what, what that same assumption that he's warning us against today from the same passage, we're, we're receiving that same warning. Don't rely on these things that make you feel like I'm good without that. It's why John was preaching a baptism of repentance as a means of preparing for Jesus' coming. Because with water baptism, John, what John was doing was he was giving ultimately a public way of both a self-acknowledgement as well as an acknowledgement to God that we're not okay spiritually and that we're in need of his refining work. That's what baptism was preparing for the coming of Jesus. It was a public acknowledgement to ourselves and to God I'm in need of that refining work from Jesus. So that's what I'm talking about with this presumption of refinement, this idea, I don't even need it before even considering what it is. But then, the last part about this passage that we're going to look at is the purpose of refinement. Now we'll get to the purpose of refinement, which hopefully is going to answer the questions both of what refinement is, as well as why Jesus is the only one who can bring it about. When it comes to understanding what refinement is, generally speaking, I think the process of refinement that we read about in that prophecy from Malachi, probably the most helpful image when it comes to describing, he describes Jesus as a refiner and purifier of fine metals like silver and gold. If you've never seen this before or or, or learned about the process before, this is where metal is heated to sufficient temperatures that will cause it to shift or change its state from a solid into a liquid. I was going to make some reference to uh, Terminator 2 for some who might want that like understanding of solid metal coming into a liquid, but let's move on. we got to get going here. Uh, the metal is heated to a place where it turns into liquid, and then it's heated to a sufficient temperature where any impurities that still exist in the metal, they float to the surface, they are skimmed off, thus producing an increasingly purified, more valuable metal. That, that's generally speaking how I understand and try to explain the refinement process. But now take that image and then applying it personally and spiritually, this is why Jesus is the only one who can bring about refinement in our lives. You see that especially in verse 16 of our passage. Look there. They're all wondering if John might be the Christ. And John says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, who's the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Okay, so for a while, a baptism with water, you've got like maybe a gold bar, a silver bar. It, water might cleanse the surface. It might wash it off and make it look clean and pure. Baptism with fire, kind of baptism that John says Jesus alone brings, is the only force that's powerful enough to bring about true refinement and purification at the core, like at the level of the heart. It's the only thing that can get down underneath the surface to truly make us refined and pure. And, and that's the thing, right? I mean, we use this language all the time in church, but so often what people mean by being refined, seeking to like live more purified lives, what they're almost always talking about is external behavior, right? They're talking about cleansing the exterior with water, you know, the paint job. That's what people almost always mean when they talk about that. And yet, what did Jesus say to the Pharisees later on in his ministry, some of the most externally pure and righteous people around. He said, you look good on the outside, beautiful, brilliantly white on the outside, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. 
We don't need just purification on the outside. We need it at the level of the heart. Why? Because true refinement and purification is something that takes place from an inside-out way, an inside-out. And as we've seen, it's something that only fire, and in this case now the fire of the refiner, can bring about. But I don't know, maybe you look at the examples that John gives of different people in verses 10 through 14. Remember, they're saying, what do we do? And he gives them all these different examples. And you say, okay, what isn't external change, isn't behavioral change what John was calling those people to? Actually, no. (laughs) No, it isn't. Uh, Because if you look closely at what John said back in verse 8, he said the purpose of what he's doing here and what he's calling people to do is to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. You see that? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So, And this is so important to grasp. Behavior change isn't repentance, actually. Behavioral change isn't repentance. Repentance, remember, as I said before, it's a public or, or a self-acknowledgement as well as an acknowledgement to God of our need to be refined. See the difference? Repentance is stating my need to be refined. That's why John's teaching and baptizing about preparing the way for the coming of Jesus. That's why he's doing this. Jesus is the one who came to refine and purify those who'd acknowledge their need to be refined by Jesus. they're, They're doing the work of preparing themselves for his coming so that then changed behavior, all those things that John was talking about to those different groups of people, changed behavior is simply seeking to live more and more in line with the refined, purified selves that Jesus is creating within you. That's what that means. Transforming me, not not just like how I think and behave, but why I think and behave that way. Transforming me at the core, at the level of even my motivations. For what purpose? Why? Why, why Why does he want to come and do this? Why would God send Jesus as a refiner to transform us at a heart level? And why is this good news? I think the answer to that question is found in the plainly stated purpose of our salvation found in Romans 8. We love, we love verse 28, which talks about, says, And we know God think, works all things together for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his good purpose. But then verse 29, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That means the purpose of salvation is that by means of a restored relationship with God through Jesus, the transforming work of his spirit in us, as well as the communion that we experience together as his body, the church, that we might daily look more and more like Jesus. That's the purpose of salvation, that you and I would look more and more each day like Jesus. To the point that at last one day, when he appears, as the Apostle John says beautiful in 1 John 3, we shall be fully like him for we shall see him as he is. That, that fully purified process one day when we see him. And as it relates to you and me today, the one kind of big question that I'd hope we'd ask ourselves coming out of all this is, is just the question, is that purpose that Jesus came to bring about being brought about in you? Is the purpose that Jesus came as a refiner being brought about in me? Am I seeing that happen? And hear me, not am I getting better at white-knuckling external religious behavior so that I look more like a pure person. That's not what I'm talking about. Have I acknowledged my need for refinement? 
turned away from my sin and towards Jesus, the one person who's able to transform me at a heart level, the level of my motivations? Am I submitting to his work as he takes an ax to the root of those deeply rooted habits in my life that are robbing me of the life that Jesus came to bring? Am I submitting to his work of, of sifting as he burns away all the chaff in my life, all those kind of meaningless, time-wasting, joy-robbing stuff that's maybe not even sinful. It's just not the point. It's not the, the fullness of what he's called me to. That's how I know whether the purpose of God in sending Jesus as a refiner is being worked out in my life. And then when that's happening, that, that's what then enables me to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Once I've started with my acknowledging for that need, then I start to produce fruit in keeping with that repentance. But having said all that, the last thing I want to consider as we close this morning is maybe one of the most important truths of all as it relates to this idea of Jesus coming as a refiner. We've talked about our submitting to our, our need to be refined and all these things, but I think along with that, one of the most important truths we could look at I want to close with this because a very prevalent teaching in the church right up until today is a presentation of a gospel message that says the whole point of Jesus coming, the reason Jesus would come as a refiner is because we are just these horrible, worthless, God-hating people living in a God-forsaken world, but don't worry, Jesus uh, was so gracious and good, he came to, to save us, wash us, make us worthy to be in his presence anyway. How many of you just have heard a gospel presentation like that? I think it's, it, it, there's, I wouldn't be surprised if, if many, if not all of us, have heard that presentation of the gospel. And I also wouldn't be surprised if I just ended the message here and we just kind of walked out this morning. You need to be refined. Submit yourself to Jesus and he'll refine you. A lot of us wouldn't walk out of here this morning thinking, great, another message about how worthless I am, but... God was good enough to save and refine me anyways. Good. I guess that's good. And don't get me wrong. I, I understand where we can, how we get to that place, how we can understand the gospel message that way. There, there's some truths included in there. And no question, listen, the presence of sin in our world and in us, yes, it's had a devastating impact on how we relate to God and on, and on our ability to be in relationship with Him. No question. And yet, the, the problem with that understanding of the gospel is that that understanding of the gospel starts in Genesis 3 with the fall. Whereas the Bible begins with the story, and I trust this is not uncontroversial, the Bible starts in Genesis 1. Is anybody <laughs> confused about that? The Bible starts in Genesis 1, and in Genesis 1, where the story begins, is with the good God and his good creation including men and women made beautifully in his image and likeness. That's where the Bible begins. And I think that's where we need to begin as well when seeking to understand how God relates to us and why he would send Jesus to earth as a refiner. Because did you notice, with each of those images of refinement that we looked at today, silver and gold, wheat, uh, fruitful trees, they're images of already precious purposeful, needful things that are only being refined in order to increase their value, suit them even more better for their purpose, make them even more fruitful. Do you see that? They're starting with already valuable things. And my point is, 
And what we need to understand is when we start the gospel presentation from Genesis 1 is that's who you are to God. That's who I am to God. That's who God sent Jesus to come and, ref- and refine. I need you to hear me say this. The gospel is not a junk repurposing mission. The gospel is not about a, a sewage treatment processing plant. The gospel message is about God the Father sending his most valuable gift of his son in order to rescue and refine that which is most precious to him, his creation, you, me. Think about it. You don't refine useless metals. You don't don't toss away wheat because the husk is still attached. You don't prune trees that aren't already bearing fruit. Are you starting to see it? The reason Jesus came as a refiner is because it was a treasure recovery mission. And his coming as a refiner, it truly is a good, it, it is good news when we see it from a Genesis 1 beginning. And it's also a powerful, unmistakable statement of your immense value and worth to God. It's a picture of who Jesus came to be that I think all of us would would want to make room for. Which isn't for a moment to say that the the process of refinement that Jesus does in our lives is easy. No, it's not. I mean, in all kinds of ways, the process of refinement is, is hard. It includes painful letting go of things. It includes cost, absolutely. But it's also something that's worth making room for. That's a statement of just how much you are valuable to God, that he would want to come and refine what's already valuable to him. And it's a process of refining that I think is beautifully pictured in a poem. I know I've shared this at least once before, a poem by an unknown author, but I want to close with this this morning as it pictures, I think, really beautiful what that refinement process looks like and the loving Father who brings it about. Let me read this for us. He sat by a fire of sevenfold heat as he watched by the precious ore. And the closer he bent with a searching gaze as he heated it more and more, he knew that he had ore that could stand the test and he wanted the finest gold to mold as a crown for the king to wear, set with gems with a price untold. So he laid our gold in the burning fire, though we fain would have said him nay, And he watched the dross that we had not seen as it melted and passed away. And the gold grew brighter and yet more bright, but our eyes were so dim with tears, we saw but the fire and not the master's hand, and we questioned with anxious fears. Yet our gold shone out with a richer glow as it mirrored a form above that bent o'er the fire, though unseen by us, with a look of ineffable love. Can we think that it pleases his loving heart to cause us a moment's pain? Ah, no, but he saw through the present cross to the bliss of eternal gain. So he waited there with a watchful eye, with a love that is strong and sure. And his gold did not suffer a bit more heat than was needed to make it pure. Amen.